So if you guys remember, we started at the beginning of this school year in the first book of the Bible, right on page one in Genesis. And whereas Genesis sort of read like a, a tragedy, like a downward spiral, it starts off really good and God makes everything good and perfect and there's no death and there's no suffering or sickness or disease or anything. And then he gives people the ability to choose and they can choose to follow him or they can choose sin. They can go their own way. And, and of course, we people choose sin and did it consistently. And so even though Genesis is kind of this chronicle of all these bad events that carry on and on and on, there's this theme that starts right after the first people sin for the first time and carries on through the rest of the book and really carries on through the whole rest of the Old Testament. And that theme is that someday God is going to fix stuff. Someday he's going to make it right. And the first time that this person, that the Jewish people called the Messiah, the first time he's ever talked about in Genesis, he's talked about as a person who is going to come and is going to destroy the work of evil, the work of sin and death, the work of the devil in the world. And and is going to be wounded in the process, but is in some way going going to bless the whole world and make things right again, restore things to the way God intends them to be. And so, we skip the whole Old Testament and we got to Mark. And the very first sentence of the Gospel according to Mark was about how Jesus is the Messiah. About how Jesus is the person you've been looking forward to since Genesis. And Mark's intention in the way he records the life of Jesus is really interesting. Because at the time of Jesus, the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, but they were looking for a totally different person than Jesus ended up being. They were under the oppression of the Roman Empire at the time, and so when they thought, God's going to send a Messiah, their automatic thought was, God's going to send a strong military leader, and we're going to overthrow the Romans, and we're going to be a free and independent nation again. And so when Mark talks about how Jesus is the Messiah, he spends all this time focusing on the way that Jesus is different than what you expected in the Messiah. For example, they wanted the military leader. They wanted somebody to gather strength and to gather strong people around them. And the first thing Mark talks about Jesus doing is going to the sick and the weak and the messed up people and healing them and gathering those people around himself. And you would assume that if someone like Jesus were looking for fame and and power and, and certainly political power, they'd want to gather as many people around them as possible. But Mark shows that Jesus is on purpose avoiding fame. And in many cases, avoiding crowds whenever it's possible. And that many times when he heals people, he tells them, hey, keep it on the down low, man. Don't go around spreading this to everybody. And of course, the people immediately disobey him, right? And of course, they go tell everybody. But it's obvious Jesus isn't seeking fame. And then at the end of the last section that ended in verse 17 that we looked at last week, Jesus did this really unexpected thing. And he started hanging out with the people in his society that were considered the absolute worst. The people in that Jewish society that everybody looked at and said, that person is messed up. That person is a sinner. And those were the people Jesus was hanging out with and having dinner with. And of course, all the religious leaders were just shocked by it. And so that kind of sets up right where we are in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. You're going to hear about two groups of people. One of them are John's disciples. You're talking about John the Baptist there. He's a cousin of Jesus. 
He's a religious leader. He's a prophet. He's someone who hears from God and conveys that to the people. But in a way, John's message was pretty different than Jesus's. And then you're going to hear about this group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were like the religious leaders at the time. We don't have anything like them today because they had both religious power and political power. They're like a cross between like senators and pastors. And, and so they, they like, if they condemned somebody, the rest of society would follow suit. And so anyway, John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. You know what fasting is? Fasting's a thing from the Old Testament where people would on purpose not eat for a certain period of time, and they would devote that time that they would have spent preparing food and eating and cleaning up. They'd devote that time to praying. It was something they did when something really tragic and horrible had happened. They would fast as a way of mourning or grieving. And it was something they did when they felt they were far away from God. And they felt they were too distant from God. And they wanted to be closer so they'd get hyper-spiritual and they would fast. Alright? So verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. Verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Verse 23, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to them, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Verse 27, then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Beginning in chapter 3, we're just doing the um, the first, is it, um, six verses of chapter 3. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Verse 5. He he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. All right, that's all we're going to read tonight. So go back to where we started, to chapter 2, verse 18, right there at the top-ish middle of page 700. So... John's disciples, again, John the Baptist isn't a, isn't a bad guy in the Gospels like the Pharisees are, but he's a guy who, whose message has been a little bit before Jesus and has told people, the kingdom of God is coming, you need to be ready for it, you're unworthy of God's perfection, so you need to repent 
and you need to be baptized and have your sins forgiven. And so he's, he's got this message of repenting and being ready to meet Jesus. And John's disciples are very, very serious. And so they know that there's stuff wrong with them in their lives. And so they're pursuing this religious ritual, this practice of fasting. And again, purposely not eating, usually for one day a week. Most of them would do it, sometimes two, if they really wanted to be holy and righteous and good. But they would, uh, they would take that time where they would normally be preparing food and eating it. And I know that in 2018, you just get something from Costco, put it in your freezer, and then you get it and put it in the microwave, and the food preparation is all of like 45 seconds, right? But that's not how it worked in the first century. Costco hadn't been invented yet, and neither had freezers and neither had microwaves. So food preparation is a big, long deal. It's hours. And so these people would devote hours and hours to praying and studying over the scripture. And, and you know what? If you're doing something that's kind of intellectually and mentally intense, like concentrating in prayer, and you're not eating, like that is, it's work. It's tough. And so when you're doing that, you're not having a good time at all. And so these guys are fasting. Both John's disciples and the Pharisees, they're regularly fasting. And on a time when a lot of the people are fasting, they look and Jesus and his disciples are hanging out and eating. They're not fasting. And so look at what they say. So verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? You see what they're saying? They're saying, Jesus, you're claiming to be the Messiah. You're claiming to be God the Son, right? And yet, we're doing these holy things, and you're not doing them. If you were a holy, good person, if you were something divine, surely you would be doing these religious things that we're doing. And yet, what's Jesus' response? Look at uh, verse 19. Jesus uses this, this wedding metaphor. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom, bridegroom is an old word that means groom, how can the guests of the bridegroom or groom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And on that day, they will fast. So why do people fast? To be closer to God. And so Jesus' disciples are with him. If we're talking about closeness to God, they're like a foot and a half from God. Right? And so Jesus is saying, these guys don't need to fast. If you're fasting, if you're doing these religious things to be near God, here I am. That's what Jesus is saying. Right? And so it is ridiculous to try and drag this old religious ritual about how distant you are from God into a relationship with Jesus because Jesus is right there. And he's saying there'll be a time later when they're going to feel distant from God, when Jesus is, is crucified, right? And, and when Jesus raises his robe, risen again, I can't speak apparently. And, and then after he leaves, there's going to be a time when, when that's going to be an appropriate thing sometimes but for now he's saying no this is a joyful occasion i'm right here you're doing this to be near to god and here i am now look at how he further explains it look at verse 21 no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old making the tear worse anybody here know how to sew 
at all? A few of you? Yeah? Have anybody, anybody ever had a piece of clothing that you really liked and you washed it in way too hot of water and then it didn't fit anymore? Yeah? A few of you? Okay, so again, 2018, we've got all these amazing pieces of technology and one of those things is we're pretty good now at making clothes that don't shrink. But in the ancient world, that wasn't the case. If, if a thing came, if you had a new piece of cloth, you would really, really need to put it through the ringer before you attached it to anything else and make sure it was all the way shrunk. So what Jesus is saying is you've got, you've got your robe or your tunic or whatever, and say it gets a big old hole in it. And so your tunic is well worn. It's, it's as shrunk as it's going to get, right? And so you can't take a brand new piece of cloth that hasn't been well worn and attach it to that same hole. Because if you do, you're going to stitch all around the outside of your hole, and then when it gets washed, you know what's going to happen? The old thing on the outside isn't going to shrink because it's already gone through that, but the new piece of cloth is going to shrink, and it's going to tear all the stitching as it shrinks, and it's going to further ruin your old tunic, and the whole thing is going to be useless. So he's saying, keep old cloth away from new cloth. And he's not, he's not giving you a, uh, a lesson in, in being a seamstress. He's talking in metaphor. And let that metaphor keep going. Look at verse 22. He says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So these days when people make wine, they tend to use barrels or big vats that can hold pressure really well. But in Jesus' time, they would use animal hide, right? And so they, they, you know, when a cow would be killed and they would eat the meat and everything, they'd put the skins to good use. They'd take the leather and they'd fold it up and stitch it on the sides and it would be a container for liquids. And one of the things they would do in those containers, sometimes they'd carry around water, hold on there. One of the things they would do is they would ferment wine in it. And so you take grape juice and you put it in there and you seal it and you put it in the shade for a long time. And then over time, as the fermentation of the sugars and the grape juice happens, a lot of gases start to develop and it expands and there's a lot of pressure on that wine skin. And so what happens? It stretches. And so new leather that hadn't been stretched yet was good for that. And after it had been used for that, you could use it for other things, like to carry water or to carry wine that had already been fermented. But you couldn't ferment wine again in that same wineskin because it had already been stretched. So if you took this already stretched wineskin, and again, you put your grape juice in it, when the fermentation happens again, it's going to put all this pressure on the inside of it, and it's going to burst, and your wine, all your hard work is going to spill out everywhere, and it's all going to be worthless. So Jesus is saying, keep old wine with old wine skins, and new wine or grape juice that hasn't been fermented yet with new wine skins, right? Keep the things separate. Keep the old with the old, and the new with the new. What in the world is he talking about? Here's what he's talking about. The context of the whole thing is that the disciples of John and the Pharisees are coming up to Jesus and his disciples, and they're trying to impose old religious rituals on them. Let's talk about the word religion, because it's really important that we understand what we're talking about. So religion, just picture the letters in your head, R-E, 
which means again, right, in English. Our religion word comes from a Latin word, and so the roots are often the same. And then the L-I-G in the word religion comes from the same root word that we get the word ligament from. The, the, the ligaments. You got muscles, you got bones, and you got ligaments that stretch and hold everything together, right? And what the word religion means, actually, is to reattach something. That's what ligaments do. They attach the parts of your body. Religion is the idea that you and I have to do good things. We have to avoid bad things and do good things, including a lot of different rituals and traditions, in order to fix our broken relationship with God, in order to reattach ourselves to our source, to God. Right? And the basic plot of every religion in the world is that things used to be good, and now things are bad, and we've got to do stuff to make things good again. Right? And so, one of the ways that the Jewish people's religion expressed itself was that they would fast. They would say, I'm distant from God. The world is broken. My community is broken. The way I'm going to fix it is I'm going to make myself near God. And I'm going to do things like fasting to reattach myself to God. And yet, Jesus for some reason, didn't teach his disciples to do those things. Isn't that interesting? Why? Well, there's a huge reason, and the reason is that the message of Jesus is completely different from the message of every other religion on the planet. Again, the basic plot line of all these religions is things were good, we messed things up, now we have to get in there and do the hard work and fix things ourselves. And the basic message of Jesus is very different. It starts the same. Things were good. We messed them up. But the person who fixes it now is totally different. The message of Jesus is that he has done all the work of fixing things. See, religion is people trying to do good things and avoid bad things to, in a way, reach up to God. And the message of Jesus is that God has come down and reached down to you. To pull you up. The Pharisees and the disciples of John were very into what we call the law in the Old Testament. And you know the law. The law is things like the Ten Commandments. Don't lie. Don't steal. Honor your parents. Observe the Sabbath. All that kinds of stuff. And, and we look at the law and we said, you know what? If people would do these things, the world would be good. But then we look at our own lives and compare them to God's law. And if we're honest, we say, uh-oh. I don't do these things, right? I mean, just look at a couple of those Ten Commandments. Don't lie, right? You think the world would be better if people didn't lie, right? But do you lie? Eh, sometimes. Maybe to get yourself out of a jam. Maybe to get yourself out of the occasional awkward situation, right? So we look at one commandment, and we've already broken them all. So, guys, the law... The Bible's very clear, has never saved anyone. The law functions as a mirror where when we look at it, it gives us a view of what our life is like in the sight of God. And it shows us that we're not holy, that we're not righteous, that we are not ultimately good. It shows us that we're, we're broken, we're bent, we're, we're, we're twisted in, in some way or another. And that's where we need what Jesus has, the gospel. 
The law condemns. It tells you what you should be. And if you're honest, you have to acknowledge you are not those things. But the gospel is the message of Jesus. That Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I haven't lived. That he kept the law on our behalf. And then he died on the cross to pay the price that our sin deserved. The Bible says the wages of sin, the consequence of sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you got the law, which condemns people and motivates them to do things to try and earn God's approval. And then you have the gospel, which says... God has done it for you. Jesus has earned God's approval for you. In fact, when the Apostle Paul talks about this thing in the New Testament, he says that when God looks at us, at people who believe in Jesus, what he sees is all the goodness and all the perfection of Jesus. You don't have to earn God's approval. All you have to do is put your simple trust, your simple faith in Jesus who has done the work for you. The law tries to make us live up to a certain standard that we can't live up to because we're sinful. We have a sinful nature. But the gospel is this flat-out pronouncement that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is home free. They're golden. They are forgiven. They're not, you're not only is like the, the, the bad credit for your sin wiped out, but you get the good credit for what Jesus has done. And so, when the Pharisees and even John's disciples, who are pretty good guys, get confused about this and try and put the law on Jesus and his disciples, Jesus says, no way, man. Those things are about trying to earn your way to God. And and I am here to do that for you. So keep your old guilt and your old rituals that are entirely designed to try and earn God's favor, keep that away. That's the old stuff. And embrace this new freedom and this new forgiveness and this new life of grace that God has granted you through what Jesus is going to do. You don't have to earn God's approval. Jesus has done it for you. All God asks is that you put your trust in him. The Bible says God loved the world so much he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have eternal life. All right, I'll let you go to your groups. I'll...